0: Welcome, everybody, to episode 10 of the Film and Nepotism podcast. My name is Bodie Cutler, and I'm your host for this fantastic show. And joining me is a new guest on the show. He hasn't been here before. Welcome, uh,
1: Jared Presswich. How are you? This is the this is the definition of nepotism. You know, I mean, you let your friend come on the show, and you're like, every anniversary you're allowed to intro, and I've already regret my decision. I'm not new. I am the host of the show, Bodie.
0: Well, as I said, everybody, this is my show, and we're doing it my way. So the first thing <laughs> we're going to talk about is some movies that we've seen. Oh, actually, no, we're not. You know what? Jared, it's your turn to do my job today. You're going to tell us and all the lovely people at home what this podcast is about.
1: Well, it's a show about recommendations. So two hosts, two movies. We recommend one to the other that they haven't seen or maybe haven't seen for a while. And we just, the first two segments, we just review them as they are, their cons, their pros. But the third segment, we contrast them together. Uh, contrast them with the genre. You know, the sky's the limit for what we talk about in that segment, and yeah, we have a good uh, show planned today, I think. But yeah, like you said first, let's talk about some new release movies.
0: Okay, Jared, now you've seen a movie that I haven't seen, and we're going to get into that right now, and that is Boy Raised. Jared, tell me a little bit about it, tell me the premise, uh, did you enjoy it?
1: Boy raised it stars Lucas Hedges as a young man who is forced by his parents to attend a gay... Conversion treatment program, so it follows him before he went in there and while he's in there and his struggles with his parents, with the main therapist quotation marks, I said it very lightly, played by Joel Edgerton. And it was based on a memoir as well, and uh the way I would describe this movie is harrowing. I don't think I've been affected by a movie like this in a long time. It was directed by Joel Edgerton, who's known mostly as an actor, and this is his second directed film, I think, behind the gift, which is also very good. The whole time I was watching the film I was just shaking my head. <laughs> you can't really believe what some of these characters are saying, like how they could think that certain way, like Russell Crowe and Nicole Kidman as uh, young Jared's parents that are very religiously inclined. And just the idea of a gay conversion treatment program is, is crazy. And I'm glad that a story like this was told at, it- Shed some light. And it's only one story of 700,000 in America alone. So they say that at the end of the movie. But yeah, the cast was great. As I said, Lucas Hedges, he's a great young actor. You may have seen him in Manchester by the Sea and Three Billboards Outside Epic, Missouri. He's really good. He'll be getting work for a long time. And Russell Crowe and Nicole Kidman, they weren't really in it as much in the beginning, but they definitely had some really great scenes at the end. Overall, yeah, this is one of my favorite movies of the year, but it's a, it's definitely a hard watch. It's not a movie you pop in on a lazy Sunday <laughs> to um, just to check out. So, yeah, but I would recommend everyone go see it, for sure.
0: Brilliant. And now let's move on to something we both watched this morning, actually, podcast recording time, and that is The <laughs> Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Buster Bluth, as he is affectionately known in this studio. I see you shaking your head, Jared. It's my show. We're doing it my way. Oh, okay. The Ballad of Buster Bluth. Jared, what did you think of this Netflix movie
1: directed by the Coen Brothers? Definitely a big coup for Netflix. Probably one of their biggest names that they've brought over to their streaming service. Yeah, it's a it's an anthology movie, uh, a Western anthology movie. So, how many how many stories are in this? Like six or yeah, seven? Six
0: mo- six stories. I think I counted by the end of it.
1: They're all really good. Obviously, there's some that. People would favor more than others, but the movie overall it was really good. It's a return to form, I feel, for the Coen brothers. I didn't like their last movie very much, um, Hail season Hail Caesar, no, yeah. I,
0: that no. That fell quite flat. But as you mentioned, this is a big return to form. I think everybody's going to like a different one of these. You're going to be able to disagree on which one was your favorite, but something you're not going to disagree on is that this is a good movie, and they're all good overall. What was your favorite segment? It's a really big toss-up for me. I really like the... Um, there's a, a segment that features sort of um, gold... Panning in the hills of the frontier times, and there's also one about a um, a trip to Oregon on the Oregon Trail. Um, yeah, that
1: was the longest one, and it felt more like an actual movie than a vignette. I think the only one that I would say is I liked less was the James Franco one. I think that's just because it's a lot shorter.
0: It is very short. It's probably only about ten to fifteen minutes yeah, if, maximum,
1: if, if that. But they're all very darkly funny. Um, it's yes, all about they are. ironic death is the main theme in here and it's typical coen brothers <laughs> you think something's gonna yeah. go one way and the, the cruelty of the times catches up with our main characters and this is definitely my second favorite western of the year behind red dead redemption 2
0: very poignant jared absolutely brilliant analysis and that's what i would expect for a, a, the guest host of this podcast let's get on to another thing that we watched we saw this in theaters together together lucky me I got to sit next to you and annoy you throughout the entire movie, sighing loudly, and that is Fantastic Beasts, The Cash Grab of Grindelwald.
1: We'll see how much money this movie makes. Um, Because it's
0: not much at the moment at time of recording. No? Really? I I haven't checked it it out. It's the worst opening weekend of any Harry Potter-related movie since ever.
1: Oh, okay. Well, it didn't do very well critically. It came out last week. I think the people that have wanted to see it have seen it already. I was not a fan of the first Fantastic Beasts very much. I had some moments, but I thought overall it was pretty disappointing. I wasn't really looking forward to this one, but I enjoyed the first half of this film. Obviously, the characters are nowhere near as interesting as Ron, Hermione, Harry. Lightning can't strike twice, you know mm. what I mean? But, you know, I went along with the characters, but then the second half, it just, um yeah, it was uh, <laughs> it just kind of turned. <laughs> just uh, made a turn for the worse, I'll say that.
0: You're going to like this movie if you're a fan of the Harry Potter universe in which it is borrowing lots of its material from. And I'm totally comfortable in saying that if you are a fan of the Harry Potter universe, universe as a whole, you're going to like this movie because there's a lot in there to satisfy you. But it is also the absolute clutch that this movie clings to, to try and remain consistent throughout the movie. And it totally falls flat in the second half. Jared, you're totally right. The last hour of this movie is incoherent and sloppy. And the um, plot is almost non-existent in this movie. In fact, it's really hard to remember anything about the plot a few days after seeing it because it's so forgettable and it's so bland. I enjoyed the middle section of this movie when there was more action, there was more um, cohesive storytelling going on, but it really falls off at the end of the movie from a critical perspective.
1: It just does what so many blockbuster sequels do. They just try to cram way too much in there. There's so many new characters that get introduced that go nowhere. I remember there was some, uh, some arsehole wizard <laughs> that just came out of nowhere. like, typical Scamander, and he went nowhere. I don't know what his deal was. Also, Credence played by Ezra Miller. I think he's one of the worst characters of the last like ten years in film. Oh, I, I can't I, I can't stand credence whenever they whenever they cut to him and he's so important as well, which you find out in this movie. Well, and he was in the last one as well, but I I couldn't I can't stand him. It was such a waste of Ezra Miller's talent too.
0: Roughly an hour into this movie, Jared, I turned to you and I was keeping count of how many lines Credence had currently had in the franchise. He didn't have very many in the first Fantastic Beasts, and I turned to you about an hour in and said, well, he's now doubled the amount of words he's said in the entire franchise, which is good for Ezra Miller if he needs any more um, minuscule roles in blockbuster movies, but he has so much talent that he's, it's totally wasted the, the One of the redeeming qualities of this movie actually is Johnny Depp as Grindelwald. He performs amicably, and Jude Law as Dumbledore is is also a great casting. I think he performs well above the expectations of the movie. He actually looks like he's trying really hard, but the rest of them don't all that much.
1: Yeah, he played the right balance between warm and also guarded as well, as Dumbledore as a character. You never really get the real truth, and I thought he played that really well. But the main, the main issue, the main problem with these movies, the reason why they're not hitting like they are meant to is, well, number one, J.K. Rowling has not written a screenplay. That These two movies are a first. It's a big thing to jump into. And the director, David Yates, he's been making these movies since Order of the Phoenix? Order of the Phoenix. How much passion can you have for this franchise after six movies?
0: And look, if you're not going to stick to the formula of Fantastic Beasts, which the first movie promises but does not live up to in any way, why are these still called Fantastic Beasts it, yeah, movies? Yeah, it doesn't
1: make sense. I don't know why they're telling this very integral... Brutals at times story behind the Fantastic Beast moniker. Do we need Newt Scamander in this Grindelwald vs. Dumbledore collision that I'm sure is going to happen in the next three movies? I think there's going to be five of these.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the last one's going to be split in two parts as well. So the best part of Crimes of Grindelwald for me is when Newt is taming the large Chinese monster in the streets of Paris. And you know why that is? Because it's a Fantastic Beast. What Mr Scamander fears above everything else is
1: having to work in an office, sir.
0: (laughs) So let's move on. We're going to talk about films that kick-started, restarted, jump-started, brought back franchises
1: from the depths of third, disappointing movies, sometimes fourth it's a hard kind of type of film to describe. These these didn't save these franchises. This isn't a Force Awakens like, oh, thank God.
0: Yeah, thank <laughs> we, God it's
1: coming. Thank, <laughs> thank God we didn't have the prequels as the last Star Wars movies ever. No, it, these these movies just gave a shot of adrenaline to maybe a, maybe a tired franchise, maybe one that yeah. wasn't doing quite what the studios would want. And the evidence is in the box office. It's in the critical reception as well. So we picked two that are very worthy of this discussion.
0: Absolutely. And we're going to start off with Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol.
1: Ethan, what happened in the Kremlin?
0: It was a setup. The Russians are classifying this as an undeclared act of war. The blame points to you and your team. The president has initiated Ghost Protocol. The entire IMF has been disavowed.
1: So what happens now?
0: Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol sees our return to Ethan Hunt, Tom Cruise's character from the first three Mission Impossible movies in a race against espionage and stopping his team being blamed for attempting to blow up the Kremlin, which is a very big deal in Russia because espionage, political. I'm actually not doing this movie justice. It's actually really fun, really action-packed. Jared, talk to me a little bit about Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol.
1: The franchise has been around since '96. I think the first one came out. It's been a long time. Yeah, it's a long time. Tom Cruise pretty much still looks the same. Yeah. <laughs> but he, he does have he does have long hair in this one. I said this in episode five that long hair Tom Cruise is the best type of Tom Cruise. Very true. No arguments that I will still accept at this time. You. Okay. All right. Well, anyway, Mission Impossible three it came out uh, maybe like six years, five years before number four, and it made three hundred ninety seven million dollars worldwide, which is fine. Like, it's pretty good.
0: For a blockbuster spy thrilling franchise, a third and at the time final installment, I think four hundred million thereabouts is is to be expected.
1: But Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol made six hundred ninety-four million dollars worldwide. Now that's that's quite a jump.
0: That is a big jump, and there's probably a good
1: reason why. Rogue Nation made around about the same, but Mission Impossible Six that came out this year made nearly eight hundred million. So this one was really, as we said, a little like jumpstart to the to the franchise. There,
0: these movies. From 4 onwards, received very, very well. Um, ghost Protocols are 93% on Rotten Tomatoes.
1: The other ones uh, that came after are very around that area as well.
0: Yeah, in the in the low 90s. and um, I'm not surprised because they do the, the right things well. And they do the stuff that they're supposed to do. And they give you the action, the suspense, the crime, the drama in... Spades. They just keep giving it to you over and over again, and this movie is just nonstop. There is action set piece after action set piece after action set piece in this movie.
1: This is one of my big regrets, uh, not seeing in the theater. <laughs> uh, just for that Dubai scene alone, I'm sure we'll talk about that scene a little bit later. It's crazy the action in this, and it really set the blueprint for the sequels going forward. But this one really perfected it. It's kind of a shame that it took four movies for them to be like, oh, that's how you do it.
0: Oh, yeah, I guess uh, we just plonk Tom Cruise in a crazy situation and put it on all the posters and promotional material.
1: I like number one. I like uh, Mission Impossible 1 fine. It's it's good. Number two is awful. I hate number two. Number three is fine as well. I think Mission Impossible 1 is better than three. But this one is just a whole nother level. I think the main thing, the, the biggest strength for this movie is its team dynamic. Ethan Hunt, he always had people with him in the movies before that like love interests or whatever we decide but he he was mostly by himself Mm -hmm. and i feel like he's propped up and supported well by his supporting cast simon pegg he wasn't number three but he's in it more here and uh, paula Patton as well and jeremy Jeremy renner as well both knew the franchise and it's disappointing that paula Patton never came back the end of the film had them being like we're together we're in this group (laughs) but then she never came back
0: no. And uh, similarly for Jeremy Renner, I remember when this movie first came out, there was a lot of conjecture that he was actually going to be taking over the franchise, which of course doesn't happen in this movie. And he actually plays a really interesting and, and fun role in this movie.
1: He's never a villain, but he's a foil to Tom Cruise's mm. character. One big thing that I like with this movie is that nothing works. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of... um thematic with what Ethan is going through like Ethan's sticky gloves they don't work when he's climbing up the tower the mask maker fails or you know, there's a freaking sandstorm (laughs) that that rolls in just when he's trying to chase after the main bad guy making the audience think that anything that can go wrong will go wrong is action movie filmmaking 101 Mm. you know that Ethan Hunt is not going to die at the end of this movie but everything just always goes wrong and it keeps your attention
0: yeah, exactly. And providing foil throughout the movie is, uh, yeah, like you mentioned, 101 technique to building suspense, building action credibility, which is paid off pretty much throughout the entire film. And I want to talk to you now about the Dubai scene, Jared. That is a uh, the cornerstone of this movie. It is, the for me, the most exciting. When you see something like this, you are totally amazed. It's a brilliantly shot sequence. It's absolutely beautiful. And you realize that Tom Cruise did it himself. This is him. This is him up there.
1: Yeah, this is the first. Whoa like, oh, what's he doing now? <laughs> 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 oh, he's hanging out of a plane. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. That's it's number start five. started that
1: kind of trend. He's always done his own stunts, but this is like crazy stuff. Mm. Mission Impossible 1's main scene is, you know, him kind of breaking in. That's what the that's what the movie's known for. But these stunts in this one, 4, 5, and 6, they're insane. Especially considering how old the guy is. He's almost 60, isn't he?
0: Yeah, he is. He's, he's an old man now. Sorry, Tom, if you're listening. But, I mean, even for the sixth movie... He broke his ankle filming one of his own stunts. It was delayed by three months while he recovered. And those are the uh, the prices you have to pay. You know, uh, when I was younger, it wasn't necessarily Mission Impossible. It was things like uh, Jackie Chan movies who did his own stunts. And you would see in a lot of outtakes him hurting himself. And it's really impressive. It does, on a rewatch, elevate the movie a little bit more. Not a significant amount. But when you sort of see something like that for a second time, you go, wow.
1: Yeah, you kind of take a step back being like how did they do that? How did they make yeah, that happen? Exactly.
0: And I want to talk about Brad Bird as well. Brilliant director. Absolutely fantastic. He's got some amazing scalps. Uh, the Incredibles, both Incredibles movies are. Ratatouille, right
1: one of my favorite Pixar movies. Well, there you go. And you know that he was hungry to make his live-action debut. Uh, he, he put everything into this movie. Um, it shows, yeah. It's just too bad that Tomorrowland was a bit of a flop. <laughs> I didn't mm. like that movie very much. Yeah. No. He, came, he came back with Incredibles 2 this year that I thought was very good.
0: Yeah, and he does a great job. This movie is shot brilliantly. It's exciting. You you really see, as you mentioned, he puts his all into everything that's going on, from set piece to chase across continents and towns, and you just really, you really feel... The suspense and Simon Pegg, one of the unsung heroes of this franchise, I think he really sort of lifts it to another level. He's so funny in everything that he does, especially this
1: movie as well. I think the only uh, downside to this movie is the villain. Well, I don't even know if it's downside uh, with the villain being very weak. I don't really know what his his kind of plan was. Uh, I don't <laughs> <know>. <laughs> like. I think he was meant to, meant to be some sort of martyr or something like that. But I'm not terribly disappointed with the villain. Uh, not being as effective because it just takes away from what we want to see, which is the supporting cast with Tom Cruise go through and try and save the world. Like 5 and 6 try to develop a sort of nemesis to Ethan, like Lex Luthor to his Superman, and I found those sections the weakest part of both films. I just prefer the films to just focus on the team working together.
0: This one suffers from what many people refer to as Marvel villain syndrome, where it's just a guy with weak motivations just doing something never to return again.
1: He just pushes the pushes the protagonist to their next uh, destination. They're like, "Yeah, come and get me." He
0: exactly, but it's successful and it works. It works in spite of him being a weak character. This movie is still good.
1: I really like the Kremlin break-in scene near the beginning. Mm. And do do you think that Russian intelligence, like real Russian intelligence, actually watches these films, being like, "Yeah, the only Americans can't break into oh." <laughs> Oh, what's the sheep turns into a wall?
0: Oh, oh. your Russian accent is not great. Chad, gotta be honest with you. Puny um, body. Puny. I'm not sure. I can't comment on if Russian intelligence watches these kinds of movies. <laughs> oh, that is funny to think about, though. Definitely the the Kremlin scene and the 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 plot of Ethan and his team being blamed for stuff that they didn't do is a recurring theme in a lot of stuff like this. Um, it works. It works for a good reason. So, Jared, we do have one more movie to talk about, and now this is the one that you've recommended
1: for me. Speaking about bringing a team together, we got Fast Five, baby. All right, listen up. The men we're after are professional runners. We find them, we take them as a team, and we bring them back. And above all else, we don't ever, ever let them get into cars. Fast Five is a 2011 movie directed by Justin Lin, part of the insanely profitable Fast and Furious franchise. So, Fast and Furious Four, Bodhi, it made 363 million. Much like Mission Impossible Three, actually.
0: Wow, we're seeing some eerie similarities here, Jared.
1: Yeah, yeah it's pretty crazy. But number five, it made 626 million dollars. How about that for a little, uh, little extra? A little dollars? jump, a
0: nice near double amount. Of the, oh, the Bodhi, one. Bodhi,
1: calm down. The jumps aren't over. Number six, 788 million. <sighs> Number seven, $1.5 billion. It's <laughs>
0: insane. I'm sorry, I can't keep my laughter or my enjoyment of that fact in because it's insane. I didn't have much exposure to the original Fast and the Furious movie. I still never watched it. But in high school, in primary school, everybody talked about Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift. It was everybody's favorite movie. I watched that probably a good dozen times. It was cringy. It wasn't very good, but it was always fun. And that's really how I feel about the Fast and the Furious franchise as a whole. So I've seen the second one. I've seen number eight, the most recent one. I saw that in in theaters with a friend of mine. And now I've seen Fast Five.
1: Jeez, you're just jumping from both ends of the spectrum, aren't you? Yeah, I really
0: am. But apparently I think the, the story timeline in these movies is crazy enough that it doesn't matter.
1: Yeah, but it's funny that you mentioned Tokyo Drift. That's Justin Lin's first job with the franchise. He's done three, four, five, and six. And yeah, I think this movie overall is really a lot of fun. It's really well done. Obviously, it's goofy as hell. The characters are goofy as hell. But it does change the the franchise from a sort of street racing-centric kind of thing into a full-blown, globe-trotting heist film, which I think is infinitely more interesting. It is.
0: But for good measure, they keep the cars in the movie.
1: Yeah, there's a few key scenes where they... Not key, but they harken back to their their roots, you know, like uh, yeah. close up of butts and bums bad and music.
0: neon and pink fluorescent cars. And this movie was great. And you know, if you need a boost in a franchise, I'm pretty sure I've said it before on this podcast. Put Dwayne the Rock Johnson in your movie; it's gonna make a lot more money.
1: Yeah, he did the same thing with Jumanji. Christ, and, or that
0: Rampage man. even.
1: Well, The Rock chews the scenery. <laughs> yeah. he's, he's he's the perfect actor to inject some adrenaline into a franchise that looked a bit tired. He has so many weird one-liners, too. Like, you know I like my dessert first. Now give me the veggies. Like, what? But I believe him. Because yeah. <laughs> he says this with so much confidence that I'm like, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna follow you. There's, um, there's some things that The Rock can only do. He can do no wrong, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Except for Baywatch. That was terrible. I didn't like that movie.
0: Really, the biggest thing that these movies brought back to their franchises was... Fun. Fast Five takes a little bit over the top. There's lots of crazy moments, all the heisting. And then from what I've read and what I know about Six and Seven, they get over the top, progressively more and more gravity defying, logic defying stunts. And then of course in Eight, which I've seen, they race a submarine across
1: an ice field. This has so many similarities to the new era of Mission Impossible films. Like, this one, set the blueprint, and then you just up it. You up the ante, up the ante. And eventually, we will see Fast and Furious. We will see Dom Toretto in space eventually. I promise you. He'll be up there. That is
0: a film and nepotism guarantee.
1: In his white singlet, in space. He's like, no, I don't need a space suit. (laughs) I got I got the power of family, family is the
0: family is the only protection from the elements I need.
1: Yeah, let, let's talk about family. It's it's such a meme. Uh, it's became such a big meme, but there's a reason for that because every two minutes there is some sort of mention of family. It's crazy. My favorite is when The Rock and Vin Diesel are fighting, and he sees uh, Mia, his sister, get getting you know captured or whatever, and it activates Vin Diesel's supercharged family barbecue every Sunday power up, and he and he gets and he gets out of The Rock's headlock. It's great.
0: Yeah, like uh, in Spider-Man Homecoming when Peter is thinking about all the people that mean so much to him and he lifts the rubble off of his back to, uh, to save the day. Vin Diesel thinks about all of his family that means so much to him and he's able to perform extraordinary things.
1: So many barbecues that he may not have if he in lost his family, you know?
0: This movie actually probably did a really good thing for a lot of these actors and actresses. I'm sure that they were thinking about whether or not to make any more of these movies when they were making the fifth one, you know, how successful might this be?
1: Yeah, I agree. There are definitely a lot of moments, or well, the end, it closes out, it looks like it could be the end of the yeah. franchise. They did, they did leave some stuff hanging, like uh, Letty being alive, but I feel like if it didn't make its money, really, if it would have done maybe on par with Fast Four, it, they wouldn't have done another one. And good thing it did do well, because it brought in these crazy supporting characters that I gravitate towards, like Ludacris and Sun Kang and Tyrese Gibson Gal Gadot as well. Yep. Uh, maybe a lot of people's introduction to her. She's fine. She's fine in this movie. But those three, I, I like them more than Dom and Brian.
0: That's fair enough. And um, in the future movies, of course, we get more uh, Jason Statham and The Rock becomes a, an even bigger, more vital character as well the pull
1: pull of the family is too strong you have you you just have to follow them You know exactly
0: and now we're getting it appears we're going to be getting a rock origin story spin-off style fast and the furious featuring hobbs
1: thought it was i thought it was a team up with jason Statham. i thought that was what the movie was
0: yeah i I believe so as well
1: Uh, i think uh, (laughs) yeah there's multiple
0: spin-offs going around at the moment from everything that i've seen you can't really escape Fast and the Furious in terms of blockbuster action news or social consciousness. And that's another thing that these movies do really well, which we'll talk about more later on. They really injected themselves back into the discussion like about action movies and about solid movie watching potential.
1: It's such a diverse cast. I think that is so integral to its success and um, they all work together so well. Fast and Furious 1, it did have Dom's family. Like one of them is in Fast 5. He's that beard guy. Yeah, that event. Like, but they're just so boring. Like, they're they're always so angry. Like Letty as well. I know she comes back later, but Fast and Furious is such a goofy concept. But those characters are so serious. I never like that. And when the dude in Fast Five died, I'm like, finally, <laughs> <laughs> you ain't part. You ain't part of the family no more. You don't. You don't. You don't deserve to be.
0: Yeah, exactly. And for some reason, for some unexplicable reason, you become so invested in the family.
1: It's, kind, it's kind of like a sitcom. You're like, ah, classic Tyrese. Yeah, yeah classic. Oh, that,
0: earn that paycheck, Tyrese. Good man. I recommend this movie to anybody that is on the fence about Fast and the Furious movies or if they've heard bad things or that the movies themselves are dumb. From a critical perspective, it's okay. It's pretty fun. It's pretty enjoyable. But from a, from a just dumb action movie viewing experience, this movie made its money for damn good reason for that facet.
1: On a story side, it definitely is um, bottom of the barrel kind of stuff. But action wise, you you know what's going on. And, yeah, exactly. And I don't know how they did this, because the whole movie, it leads up to this end uh, chase where two cars are attached to a giant safe, and they wreck the city and probably kill millions... Not millions, <laughs> sorry, they just kill many people, yeah, <laughs> women and children included. Yeah, all throughout Brazil. That sequence is insane <laughs> I, I just love also that the Fast and Furious team they're, like, they're just like in these nondescript warehouses even when they get found out and then the next scene they're just in another warehouse like how do they find these warehouses mm. is that just next door maybe there's just lots of them in Brazil you don't know yeah so the checklist is bring in interesting characters tick bring in the rock that's Big it tick. that's all you that's all you need and you, and you double your money
0: you're my world now Alright guys, well it's that part of the show now where we do a bit of contrasting and chat about some of the similarities and differences. We really want to dive into how movies like this revitalise franchises, or at the very least a steroid shot to the arm to bring it back, those big, hulking Dwayne Johnson muscle arms.
1: I, don't, I just do out why are you talking about Dwayne Johnson's arms again?
0: Look Jared, the most important thing is that we're going to talk about some similarities and some franchise specific questions and concerns that we have so talk to me a little bit about the franchises specifically
1: these two franchises now are so similar in their trajectory i feel like mission impossible was better in the in the early stages than fast and furious but i only just realized when we were talking right now how aligned they are together <laughs> in terms yeah, they of money are. in terms of how it's critical uh reception improved just the action is filmed similarly obviously mission impossible's action is way better you know there's only so many things you can do with cars yeah but the main thing is they brought in a supporting cast that the audiences can grasp onto, having likable characters. Mm. And it shows that character, more so than action, is going to bring people into the theatre. And if you have likable characters that you actually care about, the action is going to be better as well. So, Mm. there you go.
0: These movies sort of came out, you know, 2011. They really sort of jump-started it just as a similarly blockbustery action world was Taking Shape as well, and that I'm talking about there the the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And those movies really brought a lot of character-driven action back to the box office. Not that we didn't have it in the first place, but it really sort of jump-started the the need and the desire for group ass-kicking, if I can use that term.
1: It symbolises a new look for movies as well. If you go back and watch Phase 1 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, they look very different than they do now. Yeah, very true. And I feel like from Phase 2, which is Iron Man 3 onwards, they all have the same palette. And I and the palette is very similar to Mission Impossible. I think it just found its time period. Yeah. You, know, you couldn't do that stunt on the building in Dubai in 96. And every single film had a new director. The second one's directed by John Woo, and it just doesn't work for the character or the the whole franchise. It's kind of slow motion, brrr, that mm. crap.
0: Just everything just sort of slows down.
1: And JJ Abrams in number Mission Impossible three directed that one. It wasn't very polished and it was very it's very dated, I think. Mission Impossible mm. Four it just has a clean palette. For better or worse, you might like one or the other. There's obviously there was a lot of good action movies that came out in two thousand two, two thousand and ten. But yeah, these two maybe they jump started this kind of style and it's because of their success, maybe, maybe not.
0: Yeah, I think they play off each other well, or at the very least, the box office and the audience, this is what they wanted. These are the kind of movies that they wanted, and clearly it shows because these movies nearly made double their predecessors. These movies aren't necessarily next-gen, they're not necessarily cutting-edge, they're not remakes, they're going in with a different formula, a formula that executives and movie makers saw was working with audiences, and... They pushed it, and they brought in the right people. They brought in the right... Just everybody. They brought in the right cast, the right directors, and they they kicked it up the ass, and now here we
1: are. They're reboots from a filmmaking standpoint. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of like if you have a sports team that did really well and then it kind of went down, you need to clean out that roster. It's kind of the same thing. They just got a writer that worked for the Fast and Furious franchise, Chris Morgan. He's written them all since number three, and director Justin Lin, who's done... 3456 hmm. and they brought in others after that but it's all because of him he he started a style hmm. and all they have to do is follow that and it's going to make money
0: the the most important thing to glean from this is that what works for audiences has changed uh, a a lot and that is evident with uh, mission impossible ghost protocol and fast 5 you know they sort of heralded or at least uh, helped herald in a very new filmmaking experience and viewing experience for 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 moviegoers all over. Alright, Jared. Well, before we get out of here, I do have a bit of a surprise for you. Oh, boy. And for our 10th episode, for my first episode hosting the podcast, it's time for a fan-favorite segment, I'd say. And that is male and nepotism.
1: Oh, luckily I had some notes here already, Bodie. And this first uh, review is from Ben. Thank you, Ben, for writing into the show and he says great podcast could do with some feminine influence to cut through the big dick energy exuded by the boys uh, I'd say that's fair enough and that's interesting because a lot of my favorite podcasts have three hosts and I was actually thinking about doing a three host show but I couldn't really find anyone else that would <laughs> want to commit but Bodie has all the time on his hands so I just grabbed him in. He doesn't even know much about films, but, you know, he's here. He shows up.
0: I guess I'm here every week, and that's the best thing about me on this podcast.
1: Yeah, but if we were to have three, I would definitely bring in a female voice. I'm thinking we might do some more of that in the new year as well, maybe bring in some guests and stuff.
0: Yeah, um, you know, eventually we're going to get to a point where our formula gets tired. We're going to sell out. There's going to be ads. There's going to be guests. There's going to be drama. There's going to be explosions. We're really going to sort of go into some... Sequelitis.
1: All Alright, you got one for us?
0: Yeah, absolutely I do, and this one uh, comes from Kayla. Now, she says, I don't usually listen to podcasts. I generally find the back-and-forward chit-chat to be off-putting. However, film nepotism is one that I can follow. The conversation flows well. Of course it does. The hosts seem to have good banter, and it's informative for both movie buffs and for those who enjoy analysing the heck out of films. Thank you very much for that, Kayla. What a lovely review. Yeah, it
1: was a bit long-winded, but that was nice.
0: Yeah, very lovely. You know what? Really appreciate it.
1: Well, the next one I have here is from Alexandra, and she says, Film and Nepotism is a show for anyone wanting to know what a podcast directed by Quentin Tarantino would look like. Excellent dialogue, memorable characters, and intense violence. Five stars. I appreciate that. Uh, Quentin Tarantino is one of my favourite directors, but is she trying to say that we're plagiarising from other people?
0: Yeah, we've been stealing stuff since the 70s. All right, uh, now this one comes from Lisa, and on our original mailbag and nepotism segment i mispronounced your name and i'm very sorry for that it will not happen again this one says my little hercules how oh, are Jesus you christ haven't seen you for a while so come over for dinner soon Mummy misses you xo xo well jared yeah, my mother's name is sally so i guess this one must be directed towards you
1: you know i'm not embarrassed Mum. look i've been busy I've been, <laughs> I've been busy with the podcast you've been hearing them all i don't know how many times i have to tell you that i'm busy okay
0: so if it's any consolation, I'm happy to come over for dinner anytime.
1: Okay, our final one is from two people. It's a duo review, Bodhi. Oh, wow. Our first duo review. It's from Reese and Rochelle. A little bit of R&R and never hurts mm. anyone. I think Rochelle writes this one and she says, Reese always puts this on in the car when we are driving around playing Pokemon Go. Oftentimes, Bodie is in the back seat when we do it, but that doesn't deter him. Oh, yeah. Great podcast, it's funny, and recommendations are always welcome for us newlyweds. Five stars, wow. Bodhi, are you you just jumping in people's cars and showing them the podcast?
0: Look, guerrilla marketing is something that I learned in my job that I acquired in the middle of the year, and this is how it's got to be done, Jared. Sometimes you just have to get into cars and get people listening to the show however you can.
1: Well, I appreciate everyone writing in. I appreciate everyone for listening. This is a good milestone for us. This is 10 episodes. It's mostly our friends that are watching it. So hello, friends.
0: Hey, friends. We really, to be serious before we end off, we really do appreciate anyone that does listen to these shows. Um, You know, Jared and I really wanted a creative outlet in some way. You know, we had dozens of ideas about what we could do. But uh, having a place to to chat every week, talk about movies, and and talk about some of the things that we've seen and how we feel about franchises is... uh, been really great for me, and I, I hope it's been great for you too as well, Jared.
1: Yeah, it's been all right. So anyway, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Twitter, we're available to be listening on any of the podcast things like iTunes and SoundCloud, and I do want to announce that we are on Spotify now.
0: We are on Spotify, it's only taken four weeks, but we finally got there, and it was all thanks to constantly emailing Spotify support.
1: Thanks, Greg, from the support mm-hmm. team, I appreciate that. So a lot of people were saying, oh, is it on Spotify? Oh, I won't listen to it if it's not, so now it is. No excuses, okay, you...
0: Guy listening on Spotify.
1: Mm. You got what you wanted. You happy now?
0: Let's wrap it up. Let's get out of here. We're all done. So thank you very much, Jared, for letting me host the show. Next week, I'm sure to be ribbed
1: on greatly. and come on. It's all in good fun.
0: My name's been Bodie Cutler, and for my co-host, Jared Presswidge, thank you very much for listening.